Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, February 19th, 2024, the 1,125th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So on Friday, we talked about Fonnie Willis and the testimony she gave at her hearing on Thursday. What was her case against Donald Trump? The sprawling Rico conspiracy case has now become a case about Fonnie Willis and an inappropriate and unethical relationship with the man she assigned as special prosecutor to prosecute Donald Trump, a man named Nathan Wade. And I observed, as I think we all did, that both sides of the media went after Fonnie Willis. The Fox News crowd, of course, with MAGA and America First cheering them on, went after Fonnie Willis. And everybody was 
getting very morally worked up about how could she do this? She's so corrupt. A corrupt person is prosecuting Donald Trump. She should be dismissed from the case. The whole case should come down. And I get it. All of that is true and happening. But I don't agree about the last part because I'm not scared of this prosecution. And neither is Donald Trump. His mugshot went immediately viral. People loved it because people love Trump. This trial doesn't hurt Trump. We should want it to go on forever with Fonnie Willis at the front of it. Let everybody know how corrupt these people are and then watch the trial play out anyway. You want to get the necessary rise out of people? You want the awakening to be pushed forward? That's how it gets pushed forward. And so not only was the Fox News crowd going after Fonnie Willis, some of the CNN and MSNBC crowd joined in because this was an opportunity for them to turn down the rhetoric on this Trump trial, move the focus away from Donald Trump so that if they have to get rid of this trial, they can do so quietly. People will understand it fell apart because of Fonnie Willis, not because Donald Trump is innocent. And the trial will have served to smear Donald Trump, waste his time and energy, and it'll have no chance of being a loss for them. Therefore, it only harms Trump. So it's worth doing. No, they're not going to get to lock Trump up for this, but there was no guarantee that would happen in the first place. It could happen in one of these trials, and maybe it could happen in that one. But the point is they have a lot of different opportunities. They only need one of these efforts to really work. Now, there's a great lesson to be learned here. These people are incompetent. They are corrupt. They will prosecute their political opponents. They are more than happy to do that, and they would love to throw Trump in jail forever. But doing that in this particular case is not as important to them as maintaining the idea that they win legitimate elections. They can't let Trump go out in public and display evidence of election fraud in this trial. Maybe they'll have to, but that would be an absolutely devastating event from their perspective. So I argued that it was possible and we should continue to look for signs of this, but it was possible that this was a coordinated takedown from both sides. The phrase went out, Fani is toast. Well, toast is catching heat from both sides. That's what your toaster does. It seems like that's what's going on with Fani Willis. It also seems like Fani Willis understands that and is none too happy about it. What's happening to her now is about things that she was involved in before she was involved in this Trump thing. Assuming these stories about her and Nathan Wade are true and correctly interpreted, well, that's been known. There's no way that the people who tasked her with this monumental Trump prosecution would have been unaware about her affairs and her dating history. We're talking about people who regularly use moral compromise as leverage to force people in positions of power to do the bidding of others. The way I read the situation is that Fonnie Willis seems to be just beginning to understand the fact that she's being made to walk the plank. They decided that she is no longer useful to them, and so she is being destroyed. So Fonnie Willis might stay or might go. Even if she goes, then we have to deal with whether or not the case is dismissed. Maybe the case remains and they bring someone new in, and that is its own media extravaganza that brings all the attention back to that case and focuses in on how this new attorney is going to take down Donald Trump. 
But I also think we might just see Fani get stuck there and have to prosecute this case with this scandal hanging over her head. And I think that that is in parallel to guys like Joe Biden and Robert Menendez if they end up campaigning through this whole season and they're not replaced that would be a bunch of people who are totally compromised with full public knowledge and still trying to press forward in that situation that's not going to be bad for Donald Trump that's going to be bad for all the people supporting that side so it seems to me Fonnie Willis her usefulness has expired and now she's not only catching heat from the opposition. She's catching it from her own side. She is toast. And the reason I went back through that is because, as I said at the end of Friday's episode, I thought that I was going to do another half on the reported death of Alexei Navalny, because I think that might be a toast situation too, but that it would take too long. And now I realize that even doing all of that as its own episode is also going to take too long. So strap in, we might be here a while. Thank goodness so little else happened over the weekend. I'm sure there will be plenty of people you can hear from if you're looking for analysis of the trucker who says truckers are not going to come into New York. Cheers to them. Everybody, do what you can. Get in where you fit in. Awesome. But I'm not here to cheerlead for viral internet videos. So let's talk about Alexei Navalny. And before we get into that, let's talk about the last few years, what we are being told about Russia and what they want us to believe. Now, let's start back in 2015, 2016, while Donald Trump was running for president. You can certainly go back much, much farther. I understand our views on Russia have been shaped and influenced in extraordinary ways throughout our entire lives. I'm 45 years old. When I was a kid and a teenager, the enemy in all of our action movies was always Russian. Russians were the bad guys. And if Russians weren't the bad guys, that would mean that the Russian is talking about how bad Russia is, which basically still says Russians are the bad guys. But hey, not all Russians. We know that Russia has a history of communism. And we believe that we conquered communism in Russia in the late 80s and early 90s, but also that somehow Russia is still communist. Of course, Russia's not communist. And Vladimir Putin's opposition in Russia is communist. That is his main opposition in Russia, though we are told his main opposition is Alexei Navalny. So we already have these ridiculously distorted and inverted views about Russia, Russian society, Russian leadership, Russian history, Vladimir Putin. And a lot of that was made very clear to a whole lot of people a couple of weeks ago when Tucker Carlson broadcast his interview with Vladimir Putin. Now, I expressed at length my criticisms of Tucker Carlson in that interview and my questions about what Tucker Carlson is doing with this obvious information operation he's participating in, but we can leave that aside. There's no doubt that Tucker's interview with Vladimir Putin made a big chunk of American society take a second look and a second listen to Vladimir Putin. And hopefully a lot of those people reassessed their views 
of what's happening in Russia, what we've been told about Russian history, and what that means relative to what we support in the United States. And that Russian history is important because Russia has been involved in a struggle in that region of the world back and forth for over a thousand years. If we understand that region to be the ancestral home of the Kazarian Mafia and we understand the Kazarian Mafia and what it has done throughout the world over centuries now, if we understand this as a battle between them and their Russian neighbors that simply never ends, what's happening now looks completely different. And then, of course, we must wonder, why doesn't our objective news media give us this alternative understanding? Why don't they tell us what Vladimir Putin actually thinks and what Russian history actually is and what the history of, quote unquote, the Ukraine is? It used to be the Ukraine because it means the outer lands, the border lands. Well, what outer lands are they? Whose outer lands are those? They're not the Ukraine's outer lands because the Ukraine is the outer lands. But I digress. So. 2015-2016, Russia is helping Donald Trump steal the American election. That's what we were told. They were colluding. Donald Trump was doing Putin's bidding. Donald Trump was a Putin puppet. Now, it didn't actually cost Donald Trump the election, but they couldn't just let the story go, particularly not because they're the ones responsible for all of it. Hillary Clinton funded and hired out the Russia hoax, her campaign and the law firm Perkins Coie hired Fusion GPS. They worked with Christopher Steele. The Steele dossier was released. It was used to get FISA warrants to spy on Trump's campaign. And they kept that going after Trump was already in the Oval Office. Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi are currently involved in the most recent rerun of this story six years later, pretending that it is just breaking news and blocking anyone who bothers pointing that out. But properly understood, that was an attempted theft of the 2016 election. That was a soft coup against Donald Trump. The subversion continued throughout his term. It involved regime politicians, political parties and campaigns, tech companies, law firms, complicit courts, aspects of our law enforcement community, our intel community. It was a full-fledged attempted usurpation of the United States of America that finally culminated in an actual usurpation or at least an effectively convincing visual projection of a usurpation of the United States of America, and that remains to be seen. But regardless, this is an extremely serious situation, and that situation is ongoing. Now people are just beginning to understand that, oh yeah, Hillary did this to the mean man. Well, here's the problem. People who supported Hillary and still support Hillary like the fact that Hillary did that to the mean man. It doesn't matter to them how badly Donald Trump is treated. They don't care about actual justice. They care about displaying that they care about justice. And they have carried that forward ever since. The coup that began before Trump was even elected is ongoing now. And the people who have been staging that coup 
are now on the side of Ukraine in what we understand to be the Ukraine war, or as it's known by our propaganda media, Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine's sovereign borders. Biden told Putin that he'd better not do it. And then he told Putin that he could do it a little bit, but not very much. And then not too long later, he was in Poland saying that they needed regime change in Russia. Now, Putin, for his part, had a deal, a negotiated solution to all of this on the table from the beginning. And that is why he withdrew from Kiev, which the regime later reframed as a military victory for Ukraine. They saved Kiev. And of course, that never happened. We were told Russia was going to cause a nuclear disaster first at Chernobyl and then at Zaporozhia. Zaporozhia is at least an active nuclear power plant. We were told they attacked a maternity hospital, an event that was reported by a group called Bellingcat, who we will be discussing later. But that story completely fell apart because the photos were staged. It was like the movie Wag the Dog come to life. We heard about Snake Island. That was a fake story. We heard about the ghost of Kiev. That was a fake story. And all the while, we were being told that the Nazi battalions in Ukraine's army should be accepted because the comedic actor leading them is reported to be Jewish. And therefore, these Nazis couldn't be the bad Nazis because they were serving a Jewish leader. Well, sorry, guys, that's not how Nazis work. This whole time, we were being told that the Ukrainian army was protecting the sovereign citizens of Ukraine, even though citizens were leaving by the millions and Ukraine was forcing them from their homes so that they would serve. The average age of Ukraine's army is now reportedly 43 years old. People were flying Ukraine flags outside their houses, using Ukraine flag emojis in their social media names. They were wearing Ukraine flags on their lapel pin, including our quote unquote elected representatives right next to their American flag pin. Well, now they've got the Israel flag pin there as well. They might as well just change the flag pin to Israel and Ukraine and stop pretending to be American. But that is too honest for these people. So many Americans were convinced that we must save Ukraine. We had to fight those Russians over there so we wouldn't have to fight them here, even though there is absolutely no reason why we would ever have to fight Russians here. But people went along with it because the television told them to go along with it. And they knew that people like us, we didn't want that war. We were calling bullshit on it. And they had to disagree with us because that is how they guide their lives. They knew nothing about Ukraine except that they had to protect it because that's what the TV told them. They figured they would be good people by going along with the TV because it told them they were protecting other people. Now, they didn't know anything about those other people or anything about the conflict, but they knew that those people needed to be protected. Why? Because Russia the very big country, as Kamala Harris said, went and invaded the very little country, as Kamala Harris said. Ukraine was both the victim and the underdog, despite being a proxy state of the world-dominating global regime. And that's not hyperbole. Think about what Ukraine is. We've talked about it for two years on this podcast. It was essentially created as a buffer zone between Europe and Russia. 
There have been multiple color revolutions there. They overthrew the government. Victoria Newland, who is in the illegitimate Biden administration now, helped organize the overthrow of the Ukraine government in 2014 while under the Obama administration that started the ethnic civil war in eastern Ukraine that has led to what we see now. So Newland helped overthrow it on behalf of this global regime. Lindsey Graham and John McCain were over there with those Ukrainian Nazis back then. They even brought a couple of them home. And after the government was overthrown, globalist money flooded into Ukraine, including and especially from George Soros. They invest in all sorts of businesses in Ukraine. They bring in all their corporate partners in the World Economic Forum. They take over a country. They set up all their industries. They tell all the people that now, look, the country is wealthy. Thank us for taking over. They destabilize and destroy a place and then they rebuild it. Then it's not only created in their image. It's also fully controlled by them as a for-profit venture. And that takeover is then leveraged against their millennia-old rivals, the Russians. Under their control, Ukraine is widely recognized as one of the most corrupt places on Earth. Drug trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, weapons trafficking, money laundering, illegal biological weapons experimentation in the biolabs. It's a proxy state, but hey, so is California. And you might be able to make a convincing argument that the other 49 states are as well. So the first year of the Ukraine war started, at least in the public understanding, as a huge success. They were protecting the Ukrainians. We can shove them hundreds of billions of dollars. It's all worth it because we're going to finally take down these Russians who I guess are our enemies for some reason, like Communism, right? Oh, they're not communists. Well, they're still Russians. They hate us and we hate them. And even if that's all wrong, too, you got to understand they're a bigger country and Ukraine's a smaller country. Russia, they're the aggressors. Ukraine are the victims and Ukraine are the underdogs. So we have to root for them. Plus, Sean Penn's over there and he's a good actor. And (laughs) is that Bono doing a live concert in a Kiev subway station? I thought they were in a war zone. And last year, we hear about a spring counteroffensive that turns into a spring summer counteroffensive that turns into a summer counteroffensive and then just kind of never happens. And they say that it never happened because some 21 year old National Guardsman got his hands on their top secret plans and released them on Discord. And now Russia knows their counteroffensive plans. This is never going to work. Blah, blah, blah. Now we are into the clown show phase of the Ukraine war. No more Volodymyr Zelensky trips to Washington, D.C. to give speeches in front of the Congress. No more Oscars. No more photo shoots in Vogue or Vanity Fair or whatever that was. He's still in his sweatpants and a T-shirt. He's still asking for handouts, but now he's firing the commander in chief of his army, narrowly avoiding another Ukrainian coup and Vladimir Putin is giving interviews to Tucker Carlson. So all of this elaborate narrative was designed to convince us that Russians were extremely evil and the entire world was ready for Vladimir Putin to be gone. If Russia's your enemy and then you've pretty much lost the United States and China from your global regime control structure 
and you start losing all the BRICS nations, and then you lose an entire land bridge across Africa, and then you even have your proxy state little provinces and states and colonies around the world, those are disappearing as well. You might lose Taiwan. They lost Guyana without much resistance. There is a populist pushback in governments around the world. Well, if all of that is gone, who is left to believe you? Who is left to still be convinced by this story? And the truth is, even in the United States of America, a place more saturated in mainstream media nonsense than virtually any place on earth, even here, people are no longer supporting this Ukraine nonsense. The flags are off the houses. The flag emojis have gone away. The pins on the lapels of politicians on the television are now cause for derision. They've lost the narrative, but that wasn't supposed to happen. We were supposed to understand that Russia is evil because the emergence of the multipolar world order and a move away from the regime fiat currency currently branded as the U.S. dollar. Those two things mean the global project does not work. Everything they have devoted themselves to for decades and decades and decades, this constant cycle of infiltration around the world, destabilization of societies leading to further infiltration, eventually over the course of generations, they take over country after country after country after country until finally they have enough organized and networked power to create the one world global government they've already dreamed of. And we are at that stage, except we're also at the stage where that thing seems to clearly be collapsing. I have said countless times that there is one thing the television is absolutely honest about, and it is what they want us to believe. They will constantly tell us what they want us to believe. The facts of the story may have some relationship to truth. They may have some relation to an event in reality prime, but they don't have to. None of the facts of the story have to matter at all. They're creating a story because they want us to believe something. They want us to do something. They want us to respond a certain way. They want us to repeat certain messages. They want us to help them convince everyone that something is true. And so something else must be done. They want to get everyone on the same page because when everyone is on the same page, the group enforces everyone staying on the same page. They all agree that whatever they're facing is so dangerous and so important that the only way to possibly solve this dire crisis is for everybody to do and say and believe exactly the same things. Now, they have spent two years telling us that regime change is necessary in Russia. And not once during that time did they mention Russian elections. They only mentioned war. They only mentioned weakening and depleting the Russian military. They mentioned regime change. They wanted Yevgeny Prigozhin to bring the Wagner group into Moscow and overthrow Putin. They tried to run that story and there were people who believed them. Putin thinks that's hilarious because it is hilarious. It's ridiculous that anyone even believed that, but they did because they needed some plausible excuse for why Putin might be killed or removed from office. 
And of course, that story fell apart in under 24 hours. Everyone who went along with it looked like a fool. They still pretend that it was true on some level, but there is absolutely no reason to believe it is true on any level. If they are losing the United States and China and all of these BRICS nations and sovereign nations around the world that may not even yet be committed to BRICS, these are all going away from the global regime. The balance of power has shifted toward the good twin in enough of these countries that the global regime is now on retreat and they are getting desperate. They understand this to be existential. They are going to take all the shots they can take. And if there's some way for them to destabilize Russia in a way that might convince the people of the world that NATO involvement on the ground in Russia to deal with this destabilization or something from the UN accusations of war crimes, etc. Maybe something like that will work to cause regime change in Russia and the global regime can take over Russia throughout the last two years. They talked about war. They talked about regime change, but they never talked about elections. And Russia has an election next month. Why didn't they ever focus on that? And the truth is, it's because they were not able to raise up an opposition figure who would be believable by anyone, certainly not in Russia. But they thought, hey, why not give this a shot around the world? Maybe we can create a believable opposition figure worldwide so that people have someone to root for as they root against Vladimir Putin. And so that brings us to Alexei Navalny. Imagine a friendship, a partnership between Alexei Navalny and Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine and Russia finally coming together and uniting behind this activist hero of Russia, who also himself has a strange relationship with Nazis, both of them proud to support this global regime that has installed them as the leader of their respective countries. Now, you see, if the global propaganda media says that a country is a democracy, well, then it is a democracy and the country's leader is therefore democratically elected. Even if, like with Volodymyr Zelensky, the leader prosecutes the opposition political party, bans opposition political parties, bans churches, and then cancels elections. Even then, that is still a leader of a democracy. Volodymyr Zelensky, despite all of that, is a democratically elected leader of a democratic state. And once he is called that, then anything he wants to do is a representation of his democratic mandate from the people. So the people also want to do that thing. Now, if the regime was able to install Navalny as president in Russia through whatever means and have these two working together, well, what a story that would be. Okay. So on Friday morning, it was reported that Alexei Navalny had died. This is Reuters from February 16th. Putin foe Alexei Navalny dies in jail. West holds Russia responsible. Alexei Navalny, Russian President Vladimir Putin's most formidable domestic opponent, fell unconscious and died on Friday after a walk at the Polar Wolf Arctic Penal Colony, where he was serving a three-decade sentence, authorities said. The death of Navalny, a 47-year-old former lawyer, 
robs the disparate Russian opposition of its most prominent leader as Putin prepares for an election which will keep the former KGB spy in power until at least 2030. Now, we're already off to a rocky start here because Alexei Navalny has something like two or three percent support in Russia. He is not some great political figure there that the country just adores. He is a creation of Western propaganda and Western intelligence. They say he is a former lawyer, but his real occupation is just political influencer and activist. U.S. President Joe Biden said he was outraged and joined other Western leaders in criticizing Russia over Navalny's death, blaming it on, quote, something that Putin and his thugs did. Navalny rose to prominence more than a decade ago by documenting and speaking publicly about what he said was the vast corruption and opulence among the, quote, crooks and thieves, end quote, running Putin's Russia. And that crooks and thieves phrase is repeated in like every article you will ever read about Alexei Navalny. It's very strange. There are no other opposition leaders in Russia of Navalny's stature. For some young urban Russians, Navalny had offered hope of an alternative future to Putin, who has served as Russia's paramount leader longer than anyone since Joseph Stalin. So that means that Vladimir Putin must be an absolutely brutal dictator, so dictatory that the only opposition he has only attracts about two or three percent of the country to support him. Now, you might think that is the mark of an authoritarian, totalitarian dictatorship. The people are afraid to even speak their opinions. That's why it's reported that there is such overwhelming popular support. They just do that to please the dictator. It's not real. And people are afraid to say what they really think. Now, we've actually witnessed that phenomenon in real life here. And the people who were afraid to report what they actually think were not the people on the side of the global regime. They are not, in fact, the underdogs. There was suppression of popular opinion in this country, the way people believe there to be in Russia. But it was the popular opinion of those opposing the global regime, not those supporting it. And you can imagine a future in this country where we achieve something like 80 or 85 or 90 percent popular support. I don't even think it's all that far off. People's opinions are going to shift drastically when they understand fully what has been done to them and what has been done in their names. We are inching ever closer to that point. And you have to think there are going to be some major revelations this year that are going to shift public sentiment drastically in individual moments. The scale and the impact of these disclosures is going to go exponential at some point. People who are holding on to this idea that, quote unquote, both sides are bad because they still understand it to be Democrats and Republicans. When that understanding vanishes and it will, they are going to understand Donald Trump to be the only anti-regime option there is. At that point, overwhelming popular support will be backing Trump. Everybody will know that everybody else knows that everybody supports Donald Trump. It will then be a shameful, anti-American, unpatriotic, dishonest, immoral position to be supporting the opposition. And that will not need to be enforced. 
It does not require authoritarians or totalitarians. It does not require dictators. It just requires the public understanding who did what to them and did all that in their names. The Federal Penitentiary Service of the Yamalo Nanets Autonomous District said in a statement that Navalny felt unwell after a walk at the IK-3 penal colony in Karp, about 1,200 miles northeast of Moscow. He lost consciousness almost immediately and died shortly afterwards, it said, adding that resuscitation attempts failed. Navalny's spokeswoman, Kira Yarmish, said there was, quote-unquote, almost no hope that he was alive. Navalny's wife, Yulia, told the Munich Security Conference she could not be sure her husband was dead because, quote, Putin and his government lie incessantly, end quote. So she doesn't know at this point if Navalny is actually dead. She says, but if this is true, I want Putin, his entire entourage, Putin's friends, his government to know that they will bear responsibility for what they did to our country, to my family, to my husband, she said. So these are very strong words from Yulia Navalny, who just happens to be at the globalist military industrial complex Munich Security Conference on the very morning that her husband, Alexei Navalny, Putin's main opposition, despite only having two or three percent, has been reported as dead. What was she doing at the Munich Security Conference? You might say, well, they spend plenty of time in Germany, and that's true. They actually spent time, according to the CNN Oscar winning documentary Navalny, they spent time in the Black Forest, which is interesting because back in 2018, the Black Forest got a lot of talk and there were some quote unquote conspiracy theories about it because the Rothschild family sold off a big chunk of their famous hunting estate. This is where Alexei Navalny went to escape Russian persecution. The Kremlin said Putin had been informed of Navalny's death. The 71-year-old former KGB spy was shown meeting workers at a factory in Chelyabinsk in the Ural Mountains. He said nothing in public about Navalny. Western leaders paid tribute to Navalny's courage as a fighter for freedom. Some, without citing evidence, accused the Kremlin of murder and said Putin should be held accountable. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said the reaction of Western leaders to the death was unacceptable and quote unquote absolutely rabid. Reuters writes, Navalny's movement is outlawed and most of his senior allies now live in exile in Europe. If this news of Navalny's death is true, then it's not Navalny died, but Putin killed Navalny. Leonid Volkov, Navalny's chief of staff, said the Kremlin did not respond to the accusation. And Volkov is featured extensively in the Oscar winning CNN documentary Navalny. Yarmish, Navalny's spokeswoman, said his movement and aims would live on. We are convinced that we will be victorious in the end, she said. Russia is our country. It belongs to us and we need to return it to us. That's very bold. Navalny's lawyer was on his way to the tough penal colony where Navalny was serving sentences that would have kept him in prison beyond the age of 70. Navalny earned admiration from Russia's opposition for voluntarily returning to Russia in 2021 from Germany, where he had been treated for what Western laboratory tests showed was an attempt to poison him with a nerve agent. 
Navalny said at the time that he was poisoned in Siberia in August 2020. The Kremlin denied trying to kill him and said there was no evidence he was poisoned with a nerve agent. Russian prosecutors warned people not to take part in any mass meetings in Moscow. Supporters arranged meetings to honor Navalny in London, Paris, Oslo, Rome, Brussels, Berlin, Geneva, Prague, Yerevan, Tbilisi, and Vilnius. So all around Europe, they've organized meetings. These aren't protests. They aren't riots. They're just meetings of Navalny supporters. And you might think, well, Putin's a brutal dictator and Navalny was his opposition. It's no surprise that people support him all across Europe, except not really. But here's where it gets interesting. And throughout this time, please keep in mind the idea of these color revolutions and the idea that this same regime playbook of destabilization and infiltration plays out in cycles all across the world. Different timelines, little variations in the situation, but essentially the same playbook all across the world. This is part of an attempt to destabilize Russian society. Navalny had forecast Russia could face political turmoil because he said Putin built a brittle system of personal rule reliant on corruption. The Kremlin dismissed his accusations about vast corruption and about Putin's personal wealth. So Navalny has made documentaries about how Putin is basically just ruling with an iron fist for the purpose of his own profit. He loves money more than absolutely anything. He wants to be and is the wealthiest man on earth, and he is subjugating the Russian people for his own personal gain. That is what we are being told by Alexei Navalny. That is his theory of the case. His organization is called the Anti-Corruption Foundation. He is accusing Putin and his government and associates of being corrupt oligarchs willing to steal the energy, the resources, the wealth of the Russian people and hoard it for himself. And I doubt that anyone who listens to my show is at all confused by this. If you are an extremely powerful person in the world and all you want for yourself is extraordinary wealth, you can simply just work along with the global regime in order to have that. We are talking about people who create money and want to control the entire world. If Putin's only goal was personal wealth, he could simply turn the country over to them and allow them to run things and just keep him really, really wealthy. It's kind of similar to Donald Trump. He had a nice life outside of politics. He didn't need to run for president. He certainly doesn't need to continue doing this in pursuit of his own wealth and power. It doesn't even make sense that he would do it. It only makes sense to people who perceive the U.S. presidency as some kind of monarchy. It's like a grand prize better than any other life could possibly be. And while it's certainly quite a powerful position, It's probably not the most fun thing to do while opposing that world dominating regime the entire time and having them try to destroy you. And Vladimir Putin's doing the same thing. If all he cared about was personal wealth, why would he do all this? But back to Reuters, Russian officials cast Navalny as an extremist who was a puppet of the CIA, which they say is intent on sowing chaos and turning Russia into a client state of the West. And very few things could be more obvious 
than that. Of course, that is what they want to do. They responded to Putin's very brutal invasion of Ukraine by enacting sanctions against Russia and trying to destroy Russia's currency and Russia's economy. That punishes actual Russian people and it stopped nothing. But Russia weathered that and their currency is stronger than it was before. Now they are partners in BRICS. They are the R in BRICS and they are moving themselves away from the regime fiat currency currently branded as the U.S. dollar. They're doing just fine in that. The West, in quotes, is how the global regime refers to itself. And then they pretend that all art and culture that ever was and ever could be is a downstream result of their style of rule. But of course, that's not true either, because there is a wealth of history of art and of culture in nations all around the world. But let's close out this Reuters article. A day before his death, Navalny peered through a barred window, laughing and cracking jokes about his depleting funds and the judge's salary. Your Honor, I will send you my personal account number so that you can use your huge salary as a federal judge to warm up my personal account because I am running out of money, he said via video link. And how about that? Navalny is at a penal colony in Siberia and also just doing it all for the gram. I mean, it's ridiculous. He's like a big influencer in his penal colony jail cell. When demonstrations against Putin flared in December 2011 after an election tainted by fraud accusations, he was one of the first protest leaders arrested. Now, how about that? Election fraud accusations in Russia and Navalny arrested. In an interview in Moscow in 2011, Navalny was asked by Reuters if he was afraid of challenging Putin's system. That's the difference between me and you. You are afraid and I am not afraid, he said. I realize there is danger, but why should I be afraid? Oh, what a hero Alexei Navalny is. The New York Times reported Navalny's death in a lengthy article written by Valerie Hopkins, who covers the war in Ukraine and how the conflict is changing Russia, Ukraine, Europe and the United States and Andrew Kramer, who's the Kiev bureau chief for the New York Times, who has been covering the war in Ukraine since 2014. Wait a second. There's been a war in Ukraine since 2014. I was told that Vladimir Putin staged his very brutal invasion in February of 2022. There was already a war in Ukraine since 2014. What part of Ukraine was that in? Oh, it's in the very same lands that are being contested right now in Putin's very brutal invasion. So there was already a war in the place Putin started a war. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why doesn't the New York Times clarify such confusing and nonsensical issues for their readers. Why do they just allow their readers to have so many false impressions over time? Let's hit a couple of notes from inside their very, very, very long, ridiculously long article. They are getting the entire official story about Alexei Navalny down in one place as they often do. And of course, they have beautiful photography of Alexei Navalny as well. Mr. Navalny has been the victim of a crime. Chancellor Angela Merkel 
of Germany said at the time this about Navalny's supposed poisoning. It raises very serious questions that only the Russian government can and must answer. Novichok, a Soviet era weapon invented for military use, was used against Sergei Skripal, a former Soviet spy and his daughter in a 2018 attack in Salisbury, England, that the British government attributed to Russia's military intelligence arm, the GRU. In December 2020, Mr. Navalny released a video of himself posing as an aide to a senior Russian security official extracting a confession from one of his would-be assassins, essentially confirming the involvement of the Russian secret services. He was told that the poison had been planted in his underwear at his hotel sometime before he boarded the plane. The following month, He flew back to Russia, facing an all but certain prison sentence. He was arrested at the airport, but his return breathed new life into the Russian opposition and protests broke out across the country. So the event of him returning to Russia caused these protests to break out. These protests had to have some justification. Navalny's return and arrest provided that justification, just as I think we will see His reported death is now being used, a predicate for ongoing upheaval. Now, we have talked about Sergei Skripal before and the fact that his poisoning with Novichok is not at all proven. And the phone call they're describing Alexei Navalny making, posing as someone else to extract this information, all of that was done on film for this CNN documentary Navalny, all of it done in league with a quote unquote journalist from an intelligence journalism agency called Bellingcat. The Navalny documentary that was awarded an Oscar, an Academy Award for documentaries produced by CNN featuring this Bellingcat journalist and Alexei Navalny, quote unquote, proving that he had been poisoned and who he was poisoned by, all of it is a preposterous contrivance meant to suggest that there was an assassination attempt on Alexei Navalny. They don't prove that at all. The reporter, in quotes, from Bellingcat, took the Skripal death of 2018, took the official story about that, that it was Russia who killed him with Novichok, and then assumed that Alexei Navalny's death seemed like it was also Novichok. So then they studied where could Novichok come from? And they found a lab in Russia that they said was handling Novichok. So then they used a bunch of quote unquote intelligence tools and data tools that they admittedly paid up to $150,000 for on the black market. This is what they say in the CNN documentary with those data tools. They tracked the employees of that lab, asserted that they traced some of them to Russian intelligence and then asserted that these same people had traveled at the same time to the region where Navalny was at the time. And it's called Homsk. And while there, they got into Navalny's luggage and put Novichok in the crotch of his underpants that he then wore onto the plane. And then he was 
moaning in agony on the plane. That was his poisoning. He was brought to a Russian hospital. The documentary starts out. His wife, Yulia, is unable to get to Alexei Navalny. He's being held in this Russian hospital. We're told he's in a coma as a result of this poisoning. It was definitely Vladimir Putin. And then Putin releases his body. And Navalny's body is flown on a plane to Germany where he recovers and they figure out who's done this to him. And the poisoning story is kind of ridiculous. This is Natalie Morris from the podcast Redacted. She did a little video about Navalny over the weekend and her explanation of this poisoning scenario is really well done. Okay, question number two. Was he poisoned by the Russian government for being in opposition to Vladimir Putin? Well, the alleged poisoning happened on a flight from Tomsk to Moscow. His entourage said at first that it happened with tea, but the tea was brought to him by his own colleagues. There was another weird story about underwear. Uh, when no one could corroborate that, later they said it was from water bottles from the hotel. They said that they actually took these bottles to Germany for analysis, but airport security footage shows that the luggage was checked. There was never any bottles, and the German government never said that they looked through any bottles, so that was weird. Um, and in fact, his own colleagues later retracted the water bottle story. Now, about that poisoning, they claim it was Novichok, which means little one in Russia. Strangely enough, reports are that Novichok is a combat toxicant that remained at the experimental stage and was never actually adopted by the USSR or Russia. They noted that its high toxicity made it difficult to handle on the battlefield, meaning if they tried to poison people with it, they'd get hurt themselves. So the Soviets abandoned it, and the facilities were then converted to produce chemicals for civilian use in 1987. Okay, but guess who does have Novichok? This is interesting, and guess where it's kept? According to sources, um, Novichok has been found in several NATO countries, including Germany, the United States, Great Britain, Czechoslovakia, and Sweden, and has been used for the purpose of research and the development of anecdotes. As early as 1990s, the United States has filed nearly 140 patents on chemical weapons of this type. And as early as 1998, the American Chemical Weapons Laboratory in Edgewood synthesized Novichok. And according to this former FSB director, a small stockpile of Novichok existed in Ukraine. Huh. Okay. But suppose someone in Russia did get their hands on some Novichok and used it to poison Alexei Navalny. Well, this is known as an organophosphorus toxin, which means it disrupts the functioning of the muscles and it's irreversible. You seize up and then you can't reverse that, basically. Doctors, if they suspect that anyone has been poisoned with it, they have to wear full protective gear and masks. Funny, because no one who ever treated Navalny was in that gear. Not on the plane, not in the hospital, not in the ambulance. That's weird, right? Why is that? In fact, when he was later flown to Germany for treatment, we're going to get to why in a second, the German government later said, why did we put our people at risk if he was exposed to Novichok? Uh, and they were upset about it. Now, why did he go to Germany? It's weird because if you're going to go to the trouble to poison him, if you're the Russian government, why then do you let him leave for Germany? Uh, why do you poison someone 
and then let them go. Well, here's why. It's because this NGO group demanded that he be treated in Berlin. They chartered a plane, and the plane took off a day later. Thus, in the late afternoon, at least one German doctor was at his bedside in Russia while arrangements for his transfer were made. On the evening of the 21st, after the personal intervention of Vladimir Putin, the Russian authorities gave their agreement for him to be treated in Germany. Why would Putin do that? Why do you poison someone and then say, okay, we'll break the rules and let him leave to Germany? Why do that? So that's Natalie Morris from the Redacted Podcast. You can find that video on Rumble. It's called They're Lying About Alexei Navalny, quote unquote, Putin's Enemy. She is citing a book called The Navalny Case, Conspiracy to Serve Foreign Policy by a man named Jacques Baud, B-A-U-D. But if you hear all that and you accept the Western propaganda media's story about Alexei Navalny being poisoned by Vladimir Putin, I don't know what to tell you. That is absolutely nuts. You can watch the CNN documentary Navalny and understand the evidence, quote unquote, that they have that suggests Navalny was poisoned by Putin or even poisoned at all. What it actually depicts is this Bellingcat, this this intelligence adjacent journalist concocting an elaborate theory to explain Navalny's quote unquote poisoning and then a display of prank phone calls where they reach someone who then reveals to Navalny, who has disguised his identity, every step in the attempted assassination. They have absolutely nailed it. They've gotten Russian intelligence on the hook for attempting to poison Navalny. And that all makes sense because that's exactly what these same people did to Sergei Skripal. And the theory of the case is that there is a little Russian intelligence death squad, death by poisoning squad, who travels around Russia and Europe poisoning and assassinating Vladimir Putin's political opponents. That is what we are supposed to believe. There is no conclusive evidence anywhere that Skripal was poisoned by Novichok and that Russia is responsible for it. But that is the basis for assuming that Navalny was poisoned by Novichok and Russia is responsible for it. The second theory makes no sense without the first one. So now we have a second theory with no evidence behind it using the first theory with no evidence behind it as its foundation. And then because of those two, if we accept those two totally evidence-free theories of the case, if we accept both of those, then we have the basis for believing that Putin is responsible for Navalny's death this time. And the story right now is that he is, but that even if he didn't poison Navalny this time, he is still indirectly responsible for Navalny's death because it happened while Putin has him imprisoned unjustly. And they're making that case while trying to imprison Donald Trump. And they're making that case just a few weeks after ignoring the reported death after imprisonment and abuse of the American journalist Gonzalo Lira, who was in Ukraine covering Putin's very brutal invasion. Now, eventually, everybody is fatigued from hearing about the hypocrisies of the global regime. 
And I think it's important to look beyond just those hypocrisies. The problem is not just that they're hypocritical, where they do one thing in one case and the opposite thing in another case, and they never get punished for it. That's kind of the point. That's what they do. They do whatever they need to do to advance their own interests forward. They don't care if you think they're hypocrites. They don't even care if their own supporters understand they're hypocrites. That's what they have incentive and punishment structures for. That's what they have propaganda and censorship for. They're going to coerce that collective sentiment. Their supporters are happy to justify their hypocrisy. They say, well, we understand what the morally right thing is, and we do it all the time, and we demand it of you because we demand it of ourselves as well. In fact, we only break this principle on very limited occasions when it is absolutely necessary, and we are willing to stand there and tell you why it's necessary every time we do it. Because while we know it's wrong, we have to reserve the right to do it if it's absolutely necessary. And we talk about total inversions. Think about the total inversion of the idea of principles that these people represent. The principle is, in fact, just branding. It is just virtue signaling. We are the sorts of people who would never do X. They know that it is good not to be the sort of person that would do X. So they let everybody know we're the sorts of people who would never do X except for when they do. Now, principles properly understood are things that you will stick to regardless of whether or not it makes a situation difficult. If it makes it harder to produce the outcomes you desire. The whole point of having principles is not that you adhere to them when it's easy. It's that you adhere to them when you don't want to, when it's hard to adhere to them. And they have completely inverted that. Principles are simply branding. They're something you express outwardly. And if it becomes too difficult to actually hold to your principles, you just create an elaborate rationalization for why it's necessary this time. We are being told. That Navalny has been killed by Putin and Putin would do it because he's tried to do it before. And the proof that he's tried to do it before is that he also tried to do it to someone else. And the proof of that is, well, there's no proof of that. And despite there being absolutely no evidence, no proof whatsoever that Vladimir Putin has been responsible for any of these three poisonings, none of which are even proven poisonings. Everyone who is still addicted to the central narrative believes that it is true beyond a shadow of a doubt that Putin is directly responsible for all three. And he killed Navalny because he is threatened by Navalny's political opposition. And why do they believe that Alexei Navalny is credible opposition for Vladimir Putin? Well, because the TV says so. And he wouldn't have won an Oscar if he wasn't actually important. And you think, well, that can't be true. People don't believe things for those reasons. Yes, they do. Yes, they absolutely do. I am certain that I have believed things in my life on the same kind of totally preposterous evidence. And I would imagine that you have as well. We believe that we could never be tricked, despite the fact that we have been wrong about almost all this stuff at some point in our lives. 
I mean, if you were 100% awake and based and red-pilled and absolutely all of it for your whole life, well, congratulations, you, my friend, are exceptional. But for everybody else out there, we've been tricked a handful of times at least. ABC News updated on Navalny's death over the weekend. This is from Saturday. The headline, Alexei Navalny's allies accuse Russian authorities of deliberately withholding his body. They write, after expressing skepticism over whether he died, Navalny's team confirmed his death, alleging the 47-year-old was murdered and that Russian investigative authorities took away his body for further examination, according to, again, Kira Yarmish, Navalny's spokesperson. Navalny's team claimed that Russian authorities are deliberately withholding his body from his family and lawyer, expressing concern that authorities could be trying to cover up signs of how he died if he was murdered. So Navalny's team is demanding access to Navalny's body so that they can run their own tests to see how Navalny died. This is exactly what they did with the last quote unquote poisoning. They get the body, they do their own analysis, and then it comes down to a matter of who are you going to believe? Alexei Navalny's wife and Bellingcat and CNN and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences or that evil, brutal dictator Vladimir Putin. Assuming that it is true that Alexei Navalny was alive and is now dead then history will record Vladimir Putin as either doing it or not doing it. And the process toward whether or not history will record Vladimir Putin as being responsible for that death, that is entirely based on who society chooses to believe and how society progresses forward. If the global regime actually crumbles and their propaganda media crumbles and the truth about an infinite number of issues for which we have been fed lies, actually comes out, well, no one's going to believe any of these regime stories. But until that happens, these regime stories will still be the truth, in quotes, to anyone who remains addicted to the central narrative. They're going to be told over and over and over again by experts around the world about who Alexei Navalny was and how he died. And all of this will be directed toward Putin. It's like orange man bad, but Russian man bad. They have Putin derangement syndrome. And if that side quote unquote wins, history will record Vladimir Putin as responsible. Now let's switch to RT, Russia Today News. So this is a Russian quote unquote state media site. This is state media according to our state media. This is their headline from Friday. Alexei Navalny has died and this is according to the prison service. Jailed opposition figure Alexei Navalny has died. The prison service of the Yamalo Nenets region, where he had been serving his sentence, reported on Friday afternoon. The 47-year-old began feeling unwell after a walk and lost consciousness, according to a statement. Russian media outlets have indicated that doctors pronounced Navalny dead at 2 p.m. local time. All the necessary resuscitation measures were carried out, but they failed to achieve a positive result, the authorities outlined. The cause of death is being established. However, according to an RT Russian service source, the opposition figure had a blood clot. They note that Navalny's lawyer 
Leonid Solovyov refused to comment, but explained that his client had held a meeting on Wednesday. Everything was normal then, he insisted. So the day before Navalny died, everything was just fine. Navalny was just fine, had a meeting, was doing Instagram. And then the next day, he just died suddenly, reportedly from a blood clot. Now, you might immediately recognize that dying suddenly from a blood clot and having it called sudden adult death syndrome. That'll make you think about watching people die from vaccine reactions. And I immediately said on Truth Social the other day, a bit tongue in cheek, that if it was reported that Alexei Navalny died from the vaccine, the universe would fold in on itself. That would be some incredible narrative justice. And I find it hilarious to think about standard issue villagers who believe that the vaccine is very safe and effective and Vladimir Putin poisoned Alexei Navalny now twice having to deal with the fact that it is their favorite vaccine that actually is responsible for Alexei Navalny's death. Now, to be clear, there is no evidence that that's the case right now, but there are some little indicators. So maybe something to keep an eye on. The Wall Street Journal on Friday immediately began panicking. Alexei Navalny's death marks end of political dissent in Russia. Street protests and activism tolerated by Putin before the war in Ukraine have largely vanished. So wait a second. If they have largely vanished for the last two years, why is Alexei Navalny's death the end? Isn't it already over? And if that was already over and Alexei Navalny's death is like the final gasping breath as the movement dies isn't that a pretty clear indication that he actually is not credible opposition to Vladimir Putin? Isn't that an admission that the entire Navalny saga is a lie? Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny's death Friday at a Russian prison camp in the Arctic silenced a man who was arguably the most influential remaining critic of Vladimir Putin and the authoritarian state the former spy has methodically built on the wreckage of the Soviet Union. It sounds like they're pining away for the Soviet Union, like they miss it. Putin, who has effectively run Russia for 24 years and is seeking to extend his time in office for another six years in elections set for next month, now strides the Russian political stage with almost no visible challengers. Many of those who have opposed him have ended up in prison or dead. Since Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the Kremlin has introduced laws to punish critics of its military campaign, muzzled independent media, branded pro-peace authors and artists as foreign agents and denied Russians the ability to publicly express opinions about the war. Authorities have unleashed a wave of repression to ensure compliance. Many ordinary citizens have been swept up in a crackdown and handed fines and lengthy jail times for what authorities view as discrediting the army or spreading misinformation about Russia's stalled military campaign. A 72-year-old woman who questioned Russia's conduct in the war in Ukraine online was sentenced recently to five and a half years in jail. So Vladimir Putin is imprisoning all of his political opponents in order to stifle any dissent over his 
very brutal invasion into Ukraine that they call a stalled military campaign, even though over the weekend it was announced that Avdivka has fallen. The article goes into a lengthy discussion of how Putin is stifling dissent. They write, faced with punishment for criticizing the war, which the Russian government refers to euphemistically as a special military operation. Ordinary Russians are also starved of access to information that questions the Kremlin narrative. Putin's government has banned the social media platforms X, Instagram, and Facebook. Although the social media messenger platform Telegram is widely used as a source of information, state media remains the dominant source of news for most Russians. Television, which is almost entirely controlled by the state, pumps out daily propaganda reports that paint the West as Russia's enemy, rail against Putin's political opponents, and portrays those who left the country as traitors. Now, let's attempt to switch perspectives here just slightly. So Putin banned X, Instagram, and Facebook. Now, Instagram and Facebook are the same things. Those are both meta apps, as are WhatsApp and a few others. And people have different perspectives on what the X app, formerly Twitter, currently represents. But it certainly isn't a free speech site. It's heavily censored and heavily manipulated. It's heavily censored and heavily manipulated to benefit one particular side. It is biased toward a particular viewpoint, and that is the viewpoint of the global regime. And Elon Musk can signal as much as he wants that he is not part of that. And that may well be true, but it doesn't mean that X, formerly Twitter, is not still part of that. It still biases toward that viewpoint and does itself stifle dissent. Our dissent, the dissent of American populists, of the America First movement, of Donald Trump supporters, dissent is stifled by X. So the claim that Putin stifles political dissent is unconvincing coming from people who themselves argue for the stifling of political dissent here. And again, it's not even worth discussing their hypocrisy because their hypocrisy is baked in. It's expected. Of course, they want free speech for themselves and their message and want to stifle it for everyone else. They don't have free speech principles. They represent the understanding that free speech is good as a principle. It is just understanding the principle that it is important to signal in a certain way. Telegram is much more committed to free speech. Now, Telegram has bots and it has spam. And those two things occasionally make it a little annoying to use, but Telegram has the best tech. It is the best social media and messaging app by far. It allows you to do virtually everything all the other apps do, and it doesn't shut down speech. You follow a channel, you see that channel's content, period. I'm not saying there is no manipulation, but there does not seem to be any inhibition of free speech on that platform. If there is, I'm not detecting it. In that sense, it is absolutely nothing like Twitter. And by the way, now might be a good opportunity to encourage everyone to listen to the Mike Benz interview with Tucker Carlson as Mike Benz breaks down the entire censorship industrial complex in far better ways and with far greater understanding than Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi.
Mike Benz actually knows what he's talking about and what it means. Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger are the beneficiaries of the censorship. Skipping down the Wall Street Journal. That widespread and effective campaign to stifle opposition, combined with state media's relentless promotion of pro-Kremlin narratives, has cleared the field for Putin to win a fifth term in office when Russians head to the polls, a result that could make him modern Russia's longest-serving leader, surpassing Joseph Stalin. Even before Navalny's death, Putin faced no real challenge in the coming presidential election. The three Putin rivals permitted to run have all publicly backed the president. The only two anti-war candidates have been barred from contesting the vote. Now, how about that phrase, anti-war candidates? That means anyone who opposes Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine, except if you understand that Putin was responding to an ethnic civil war that had been waged from 2014 when Victoria Newland and company overthrew the country, starting that ethnic civil war, then opposing Putin's action is not actually being an anti-war candidate. Putin had negotiated a situation where there would not have been a war in the first place. Negotiations to avoid war are anti-war. Believing that Russia should have done nothing despite the fact that their own people were being attacked by Ukrainian Nazi battalions in an ethnic civil war on behalf of the global regime, are not anti-war. They're pro-global regime and pro-ethnic civil war. The article concludes this way. Navalny sought for years to counter this narrative with videos on social media that broadcast a simple and accessible message at odds with the Kremlin line. Even after his poisoning in 2020, when he collapsed on a flight from Siberia and was flown for emergency treatment to Germany, he chose to return to Russia and face the prospect of imprisonment on charges he said were trumped up to silence him. He continued through his lawyers to publish political tracts from prison, predicting Putin's demise and railing against the war. Meanwhile, other opponents of the Kremlin were placed behind bars, including Ilya Yashin and Vladimir Karamurza. Yevgeny Prigozhin, who led a mutiny against Russia's military leadership in June, was in August killed in a plane crash. Wagner, the paramilitary force he ran, was dismantled and taken over by the defense ministry. And of course, you get the official story about that. There is no proof whatsoever that Prigozhin was anywhere close to leading a mutiny against Russia. It just simply never materialized. And then he went over into Belarus to hang out with Putin's buddy Lukashenko. And then the story goes, his plane was taken down and now he's dead. And of course, Putin did that too, even though there's no evidence of any of that either. These are simply narrative events that require no underlying reality to be true in order to pitch the narrative. I did a long episode on Yevgeny Prigozhin at the end of August last year, August 30th, 2023. The episode is titled TMFINR, like that mf -er is not real, the plain lady. So if you want to get the full rundown on what I think is up with Prigozhin, and an exercise in extreme skepticism. Go ahead and listen to that. So Friday morning, we get the reports about Navalny's death. And immediately, 
everyone on the side of the global regime understands that Navalny is definitely dead and that Putin definitely did it. And senior people in our government, all the very serious people, the adults that are back in the room now that we have the fake president Joe Biden in charge, they all immediately went out and pronounced Navalny's death and said it was Putin's fault and felt totally prepared to give statements. CNN, the supposed news organization that collaborated with Bellingcat, another supposed news organization, and Alexei Navalny, social media activist and influencer, to create an elaborate story about how Putin poisoned Navalny. CNN was doing live updated coverage on their website, and live updated coverage is apparently just writing a new short story every 20 minutes or so, feeding you little chunks of the official story within the central narrative, little doses every few minutes, each one building on the last. And it was funny because they announced that Joe Biden was going to give remarks about Alexei Navalny's death. And then 20 minutes later, they announced that it was still unclear whether or not Alexei Navalny had actually died. Well, none other than the illegitimate vice president of the United States of America heals up Kamala Harris was in Munich for the globalist and military industrial complex meeting, the Munich Security Conference, an event where the global regime discloses to the world all their plans for military conquest and domination. Here is the world's greatest tosser of word salads. We'll listen in. Thank you, Christoph. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, before I begin today, we've all just received reports that Alexei Navalny has died in Russia. This is, of course, terrible news, which we are working to confirm. My prayers are with his family, including his wife, Yulia, who is with us today. And if confirmed, this would be a further sign of Putin's brutality. Whatever story they tell, let us be clear, Russia is responsible. And we will have more to say on this later. So no matter what, it's Putin's fault. Now let's get back to the warmongering. And of course, that's exactly what she does. The thrust of her message was that the United States' isolationism was becoming dangerous for the rest of the world. Basically arguing that you want us on that wall. You need us on that wall. As Kamala said, Yulia Navalny was there at the Munich Security Conference. She got up and spoke. The Guardian covered it. Yulia Navalny takes stage at Munich meeting after news of husband's death. Standing at a podium usually reserved for senior politicians, Navalny said, I thought, should I stand here before you or should I go back to my children? And then I thought, what would Alexei have done in my place? And I'm sure that he would have been standing here on this stage. And of course, she's right about that. He was a narcissistic attention farmer online and in real life. 
And she is exactly the same way. There is no way that Alexei Navalny would have passed up the opportunity to address the global regime in person about a big, important issue that could make Vladimir Putin look really, really bad if only he can convince anyone to believe it. And so, of course, she took the opportunity. Now, she doesn't know at that point whether or not Alexei Navalny is actually dead, but she does know that he might be. And if he is, it's Putin's fault. And also, if he is, he would want her to go out and speak at the Munich Security Conference. Now, of course, she also knows that Alexei Navalny is essentially an employee of all the people who she's addressing at the Munich Security Conference. And she probably also knows that Vladimir Putin didn't actually poison her husband, which means that she also knows if someone just killed her husband, it's probably someone associated with all of these people here in this room, since it definitely can't be Vladimir Putin. After watching the Navalny documentary and seeing the way the two of them interact with each other interact with the camera, interact with their children. It seems like this is just a family of narcissists. And it seems like Yulia might be the replacement for Alexei Navalny because Alexei Navalny happens to have a whole lot of drawbacks, let's say, to his personal profile. And we will get into some of those. The Guardian article ends this way. As condolences were pouring in, Navalny told the crowd that she did not know whether to believe the reports of her husband's death. Neumann said Navalny's message was a reminder not to automatically take unverified reports as fact. If the reports were accurate, Navalny told the crowd, Putin and his allies, quote, will be brought to justice and this day will come soon. She also said, We should fight this horrific regime in Russia today. This regime and Vladimir Putin should be personally held responsible for all the atrocities they have committed in our country the last years. The crowd in Munich gave her a standing ovation, and of course they did. She had a starring role in an Oscar Award winning movie playing herself, Yulia Navalny. She may now be the only person who can defeat Vladimir Putin. Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs released a statement and some responses to how some leaders of the global regime had reacted. They wrote, The way the Western leaders, politicians, and media have responded to the news of Alexei Navalny's death has once again revealed their hypocrisy, cynicism, and lack of principles. This is the blame Russia first approach in action with a prepped script ready for every situation. Let's look at the timeline. Today at approximately 2.19 p.m., the website operated by the Federal Penitentiary Service of Russia for the Yamal Nenets Autonomous Area reported the death of convict Alexei Navalny in prison colony number three. Literally 15 minutes later, a flurry of carbon copy accusations poured in. 2.35 p.m. Tobias Bilstrom. Terrible news about Navalny. If the information about his death in a Russian prison is confirmed, it will be another heinous crime by Putin's regime. 2.35, same time. Barth Ida. I'm deeply saddened by the news of Navalny's death. The Russian government bears a heavy burden of responsibility for this. 2.41, Edgar Zrinkovich. 
Whatever your thoughts about Alexei Navalny as a politician, he was just brutally murdered by the Kremlin. That's a fact, and that is something one should know about the true nature of Russia's current regime. And they've compiled something like 20 statements from leaders around the world basically saying the same thing, not knowing anything about the case, but knowing immediately that Vladimir Putin murdered Alexei Navalny in this prison just based on an update on the prison's website. Charles Michel from the EU. The EU holds the Russian regime solely responsible for this tragic death. This is the Russian foreign ministry again. 3.10 p.m. Kiev regime kingpin Zelensky. Clearly he was killed by Putin, like thousands of others who were tortured to death. Jens Stoltenberg of NATO. We need to establish all the facts and Russia needs to answer all the questions. Mark Ruta of the Netherlands. Navalny's death once again bears witness to the immense brutality of the Russian regime. Ursula von der Leyen of the European Commission. A grim reminder of what Putin and his regime are all about. Olaf Scholz of Germany. He has now paid for this courage with his life. This terrible news demonstrates once again how Russia has changed and what kind of regime is in power in Moscow. Our own illegitimate government's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said beyond that, his death in a Russian prison and the fixation and fear of one man only underscores the weakness and rot at the heart of the system that Putin has built. Russia bears responsibility for this. And Emmanuel Macron of France said in today's Russia, free spirits are put in the gulag and sentenced to death within a short period of time, two hours. As a matter of fact, Western politicians and their subordinate media managed, it appears, to get the results of a forensic examination that has yet to take place to investigate, to indict Moscow and to render a verdict. There is no explanation other than to assume these responses were prepared in advance. Perhaps we could believe this unbelievable, seemingly miraculous swiftness had the whole world not witnessed the months-long, toothless investigation into the terrorist attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines, which fizzled out eventually. What distinguishes all these statements is the glaring absence of even a suggestion of perhaps waiting until the results of a forensic examination and investigation are available. So what we have here is a reported death and then a public relations reaction, an info op used to convince the people of the world that once again, Vladimir Putin is an evil villain who must be dealt with. He must be removed. No cost should be spared. And just like they do in the United States with reports of mass shootings, when they use the mass shooting to go out and attempt to disarm the citizenry, a goal they already had in mind before the shooting, the shooting itself then becomes irrelevant. It is only a tool to disarm the citizenry. In this situation, the death, the details of the death, all of that is irrelevant. This is just an event used to aid in the execution of the info op. The info op is designed to convince the world that Vladimir Putin is evil. And if that is successful, then the people of the world are more likely to support whatever action might be necessary for the global regime to overthrow Vladimir Putin.
This is once again a good reminder that while they don't ultimately care what the people think, they don't care about the people's opinion, they don't care if the people love them or hate them, they don't care about any of it. They just need everybody to go on the same page, to go along with whatever it is they want to do. They don't need to actively support it. They just need them to go along with it. They can't have all of society revolting over what they want to do. It's a very low bar to cross. They used to cross it all the time easily. Everyone would just allow them to do whatever they wanted because we bought in to the official story within the central narrative. We operated within that controlled opposition dynamic. Every reaction we could have to the official story was something that they were prepared to deal with because all of it is contained within that central narrative bubble. And even if you are at the outer edges of that, you don't really present a threat. It is only when people understand the truth to be outside of that central narrative bubble that it becomes difficult for them to press forward with their narrative because now they have people actively opposing it and providing rational grounds for why others should oppose it. They don't need the active support, but they do need people to simply go along with it, to allow it to happen. They don't need your help. They only need your indifference, which is why they supply you with more options for entertainment and distraction than you could ever imagine. They provide opportunities for your entertainment and distraction within these stories they're telling you. Your support is not required. What is required is that you go along with it. Okay, so we're at an hour and a half, and I still have so much Navalny stuff to do. I got deep into this this weekend because I think that this is really interesting. This looks to me like a massive info op spanning years in preparation for a color revolution to be launched this spring in Russia that would coincide with these Ukraine war problems and these funding issues all of it in an elaborate attempt to remove Vladimir Putin from power in Russia. And I think there's plenty we can learn about the messaging and the strategies and the color revolutions, the online influence campaigns, etc. So I'm going to do another part of this. We'll have a to be continued right now. It may be tomorrow. It may be later in the week. I don't want to lock myself into it tomorrow in case there is major breaking news or something. But we'll leave it here for now, and I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do. By signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'mYourModerator. And I'll see you soon, out on the range.
It's high noon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hot!